0: This message was recorded at Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our goal is to faithfully preach the Word of God for the salvation of sinners, the strengthening of believers, and the glory of God. Please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org and listen for more information at the conclusion of this message. i going to ask you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 9. And one thing I should have mentioned earlier is uh, that we're continuing our st- studying Galatians tonight. Um, so please uh, be here for that. Brother Austin Tucker is scheduled to be back with us tonight at 6 o'clock. And then also the last session will be next Sunday night at 6 o'clock. And Yeah, I should have mentioned that as well. We're, we're doing a study on uh, Friday night in Gospel of John. So if you can be here for that, I encourage you to be here. Um, you know, uh, we like to, like a lot of people, we like to go out when we can, go out and eat. And one of the things that's popular today, of course, are the buffets, right? And it's, it's advisable not to, uh, spend too much time there or to go back too many times, even though that's part of the deal, right? All you can eat and, uh, they tell you, just grab another plate, refill it, help yourself. But for obvious reasons. I mean, you know why that's not advisable to overdo it. Uh, yet, when it comes to the Word of God, um, you can keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back, keep coming back. And it's only going to have a good effect. The more the more you get, the better. And so, uh, get as much as you can. So we're, we're trying to, uh, to make some different things available. And, and uh, so that Friday night's part of that. If you can be here, join us for a study in John. So, uh, uh, all of the Bible, uh, of course, inspired Word of God, all of the Bible is good and beneficial to study. But I, but I usually do recommend John for, for uh, either new believers or somebody that's investigating Christianity. So, if you know anybody that you, know, you would like to invite to church, and maybe they, you haven't been able to get them to come on Sunday for whatever reason, this, this is a more laid-back atmosphere, and um, John is just a great study to begin with, uh, to, to get to know about the Lord. So, invite them to come. Also, Joshua is doing his class. That's going to resume tonight uh, on Nahum. So I want to encourage you if you can be there for that. Um, that class was um, really uh, begun for the benefit of the youth. So um, younger folks, please come if you can. And, and but you know we're not going to close the door to anybody. So anybody that wants to come and hear this and take participate in the study of Nahum, be here at five o'clock. Doing that Sundays at five o'clock. So there's opportunities to get uh, in, into the Word and and worship one we have now, right? Matthew chapter 9. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we do thank you for your Word and for this opportunity. Please uh, give us wisdom to be good stewards with it this morning, as with all opportunities that you provide. Lord, may, may we not take this meeting for granted. There are probably millions of Christians around the world in different places who have to meet in secret, who have to do their best to avoid uh, those that oppose them uh, and who will do them physical harm. And Lord, we are privileged here to have freedom, freedom to worship. Lord, give us wisdom with this as in as in with all things, to redeem the time, to use it wisely, to spend whatever time you bless us with here in this life, to spend it for your glory and honor. And please enable us to do that now as we look at this passage. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, we are picking up our study of Matthew and Chapter uh, chapter nine this morning and remember uh, this is immediately following uh, Jesus casting out the legion from the uh, from the uh, lunatics the demoniacs um, in chapter eight the end of chapter eight following those events that we just read about and I want to mention again the continuing theme here Matthew's emphasis here is on the authority of Jesus so important. Um, it is, it is a, another one of those concepts that we have trouble with in our culture and it's becoming more so every day. I was reading an article just the other day about a, uh, 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 a, a known sports figure who was, uh, you know, uh, nobody that I knew. I'm not, a, I'm not a big sports fan, so I'm not up on all of that, but, but apparently a famous uh, sports figure. And he got pulled over. And just got irate with the police officer for pulling him over and impounding his car and I uh, later apologized uh, i understand but uh but that that shows doesn't it a uh a lack of respect for authority now that's that's out in the world, and as far as I know, this man doesn't profess any. Christianity or anything like that. He may. I don't know. I don't know, know anything about him other than that he got pulled over. <laughs> but uh, I just know that that mindset is pretty prevalent in our culture. And we as Christians have to be especially careful that we don't adopt that to any degree. Disrespect for authority. Authority is, is an important theme in the Bible we are under authority. All, all human beings are, although all human beings don't, don't like to uh, acknowledge that. We are under authority. In fact, many different levels. First and foremost, God's authority. And that's what Matthew is focusing in on here. He's, he's tying uh, this man, Jesus, and this ministry, ministry of Jesus, tying, tying it all into uh, God's authority. And not, and not just delegated like the prophets, because we could say of John the Baptist, he had authority too, right? He was sent as a man of God to proclaim a message to God's people, to proclaim the coming of the Lord, so he had authority. But what Matthew is showing us here is that Jesus has inherent authority. He he does come, it's true, he does come in submission to the Father, to do the will of the Father. But He also, as God, as the God-man, has authority Himself. And Matthew is bringing that out. And we've seen it in His teaching. So, for example, you look back in chapter 7, verse 29. He taught them as one having authority, and not as the scribes. Those who were professionals in the law, in the in the teaching of the law and the uh the the old testament scripture. Jesus taught as one having authority. And then we've seen this and continue to see this play out in his in his acts, in his deeds. That is, he he touches a leper, for example, and says, Be clean, and instantly the man is clean. In again in chapter eight, Verse 16, we're told that uh, many come to Him who were sick and demon-possessed, and He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, demonstrating His authority in the physical realm and in the spiritual realm. We see again in chapter 8 where He calms the sea. He speaks to the wind and the waves, in the midst of a violent storm, and immediately there's a calm. Even the winds and the waves, even nature, must respond to Jesus' authority. That's, that's what Matthew is pointing out. This is not an ordinary man. He speaks, they said, like, like no other man spoke. He speaks as one having authority. He does things like no other man has done. In fact, in Luke's account of of this uh, event we're going to read about in chapter 9, they they end up by saying, we've seen strange things today. (laughs) Well, let's go ahead and read the first nine verses here. Matthew chapter 9. In, verse, in fact, if you, in verse 34, you see that he was asked to leave uh, the other side of the lake. Uh, the people there weren't thrilled with what he had done. And so now he's going back to his hometown in, verse, in chapter 9, verse 1. So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once, some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, Are to say, arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when these, now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power. To men. And Jesus passed on from there. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. In verse 1, we're told by Matthew that Jesus got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city. That would be Capernaum, which was... uh, his home at this time. In fact, if you flip back for just a moment to chapter 4, uh, verse 13. Remember uh, remember Jesus' hometown. Uh, well, his, his, let's just back up further than that. Jesus' birthplace was where? Bethlehem. Right. And then they, uh, they went into Egypt for a time, uh, Joseph and Mary with the child Jesus. And then later... Uh, returned to Israel and settled in Nazareth. So we know uh, Jesus as a Nazarene. That's his hometown, right? His, his not his birthplace, but but where he uh, grew up. But chapter four verse thirteen says, in leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. So uh, he had, he adopts for at least for a time uh, Capernaum as his as his uh, as his town. And the events that we read about in chapter 8 uh, took place there in Capernaum. So then he moved across the lake. Uh, chapter 8, verse 18. When Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave command to depart to the other side. Went across the uh, the Sea of Galilee, uh, which has uh, about four or five different names, by the way. The same body of water. Uh, Gennesaret and... Uh, Couple of others. Um, he he moved across there, and then on the other side of the lake is where he uh, met the the lunatics, the demoniacs. They were demon possessed uh, by multitudes of demons. Remember, uh, we didn't in, in Matthew's account it doesn't give us this information. But Jesus asked, "What is your name?" And the demon the demons responded, "Legion, for we are many." And they asked permission to go out of the man into a herd of swine, a herd of pigs. And Jesus granted it, and the herd of pigs ran violently down the steep place into the water and perished. And the people were amazed, but asked Him to leave, get out of our country. Apparently, they were uh, more upset about the loss of the pigs <laughs> than they were uh, joyous over the deliverance of these two men. So they asked Jesus to leave, and now He returns to Capernaum, verse 1. And they brought to Him a paralytic, that is, a paralyzed man, verse 2. Who are the they? Well, Mark tells us it was four men. Mark chapter 2. Brought to Jesus a paralyzed man lying on a bed. Now, again, Matthew here is emphasizing Jesus' authority, right? And it's, it's unique. That is, nobody else has this kind of authority. And that's, that's going to be the, uh, what these men recognize. I don't know how, how much they understood about it, but they knew we can get help from Jesus. Bring the man to Jesus. Jesus. Now, look at a, a couple of verses here, um, because there, there's different wording and different translations. I just want to point out uh, that Matthew is talking about authority here. If you look down at uh, verse 6, which we'll come to in a moment, but for now, I just want to point out this one word. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power, is the way my version reads, but it's, it's the word authority in the Greek. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And then again in verse 8. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. Again, it's the word uh, akousia. Akousia in the Greek, it's authority. Authority. They marvelled that God had given such authority to men, to a man, Jesus Christ. All right, so uh, they had already begun to recognize this somewhat, because Jesus is, is is going around and he's performing many miracles. And so I don't know how how good their Christology was. Probably wasn't very good. In other words, what they understood about Christ and who he was, many by this time are beginning to believe he's the Messiah. Probably safe to say that uh, none of them, or at least very few of them, understood anything about his deity. This is kind of a developing concept, or, you know, the, the way that it's revealed, in other words, God is bringing people to this understanding, but I don't think it's immediate. So Jesus is showing that he's divine, he's showing that he has authority, but certainly not everybody is fully understanding that. They just know that He's helping people. They just know that it's important to get to Him because He can do something about whatever your problem is. I mean, here are people with physical ailments, like the paralysis of this man. People who are demon-possessed. And they are just coming, multitudes. And He's healing them, demonstrating His authority. Now, this is the uniqueness of Jesus. In other words, this kind of help is not available anywhere else. And so they brought the paralytic. To Jesus. And as I mentioned, Mark tells us it was four men. And boy, uh, listen, there, there's a lesson here. Uh, so oftentimes, times, like, like, like the woman with the issue of blood. Great story. She presses in through the crowd to get Jesus, saying, if I can just touch the hem of His garment, I'll be made whole. And she succeeds and Jesus heals her. But interesting, isn't it? This is a case where a man is unable To get to Christ. And like the situation with the woman, with the issue of blood, there's a a crowd, except here they're in a house, and there's a multitude. You can't get in the door. And so four men, presumably friends, take this man and bring him to Christ. Now, there's a picture of evangelism. That's that's our responsibility. Get people to Christ. Point them to Christ. Now, you can't uh, make them believe. You can't save them in the sense of actually regenerating them, converting them. What can you do? Point them to Jesus. Tell them that's where the answer is. Take them to Jesus. Jesus. And that's what these men do. And we're going to see that uh, Jesus acknowledges their faith. Again, verse 2. Behold, they brought to Him a paralytic lying on a bed. When Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. Now, the, the, right about the middle of verse 2 there, this has always uh, been very interesting to me. When Jesus saw their faith. That's a great state. When Jesus saw their faith. Now, now, what did He see? Why, why doesn't it say? Because it could. J- Jesus knows all things, right? A little bit further down, we're told that He knew the thoughts of the scribes who were muttering and condemning Him. So it could say, Jesus perceived that they had faith. Or it could say, Jesus knew that they had faith. But it's interesting, isn't it? It says, when He saw their faith. Well, what did He see? What was the evidence of their faith that was obvious to Jesus? It was their coming to Him. Their coming to Him. And it was... We've talked about persistent faith. It was a persistent faith. Matthew doesn't give us a lot of detail here, but Mark and Luke do. They tell us that the house was so packed and the men couldn't get in, especially four men carrying a guy on a bed. They couldn't get in the house. So what they did was go up on the rooftop and tore through the tiles... And lowered the man down through the roof, right in front of Jesus. And here Jesus is speaking in a house, which I would assume it was probably not uh, near as big as this room, packed full of people. And in the middle of his his teaching, <laughs> a man is a man is lowered down on a on a bed, on a cot, probably would look like a, a you know one of those canvas stretchers to us, something something along those lines. A man is lowered down right in front of Him. And Jesus saw that, and that's what Matthew is referring to as their faith. They, they were determined. Now, I'm assuming the, 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 the sick man was, was just as determined as well. He just could not get himself there. But the story doesn't tell us that. What it does show us is the determination of the four men. They were determined to get this man to Jesus for help. Because there was nowhere else to go for that kind of help. There was nowhere else to go to be miraculously healed of paralysis. But they knew Jesus had the power had the authority to do it. In fact, I think it's in Luke's account where it says, the power of the Lord was present to heal them. (laughs) It's amazing, isn't it? And you know why? Because Jesus was present. And that is the more common word uh, for power. Dunamis, where we get our, our word dynamite. Rather than in these verses, it's the word authority. But Jesus possesses both. Power and authority. And nobody else does. There, there's nowhere else you can go for salvation. So they bring this man who is paralyzed, otherwise hopeless. They bring this man to Jesus. And they lower him down through the roof right in front of Jesus. And what does Jesus say? Be healed! Well, He'll get to that. (laughs) But it's interesting again. The man comes for healing of paralysis. And Jesus deals with the greatest need first. Now, I think this is, I think this is an amazing thing here. I, I, I think this is another case of Jesus addressing that man's most urgent, heartfelt need. Now, everybody needs to be saved. Everybody needs their sins forgiven. But what I'm, what I'm saying is, what I'm suggesting is, and I think there's evidence here, that this was a conscious problem for this man. We've stated before that sickness, disease, in this case paralysis, and I'm, and and listen close when I say this because uh, just just don't want to be misunderstood. But sickness is the result of sin, just like. All evil in this world, whether it's sickness, earthquakes, tsunamis, tornadoes, whatever it is, you name it. All the evil that happens in this world is the result of sin. But, it's not necessarily the direct result of some specific sin. It it can be more indirect. And what what I'm saying is, because Adam and Eve failed, Because they rebelled against God. And consequently, the whole human race is plunged into sin. And the earth is cursed. And you can go back and read the account of this in Genesis 3. Because of what we call the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned against God, taking the whole human race with them and bringing catastrophic consequences on the earth. Because of that, there is evil in the world. In that sense, all sickness is the result of sin. Indirectly, but it's still a result of it. It's it's here because Adam and Eve sinned and because I'm a sinner. I get get colds and have bad sinus problems because Adam and Eve sinned and because I'm a sinner. Not necessarily... Directly because of some specific sin, but just because sin exists, because it's in the world. But in some cases, it's the direct result of sin. Now, let me give you one where I think that is strongly implied. It's not explicitly stated, uh, but again... I think strongly implied. In John, John chapter 5, here Jesus uh, heals the man at the pool of Basada. And then afterwards, if, you look at, if you're there, look at verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. This is, uh, uh, again, a man who could not get up and help himself down to the pool, and Jesus heals him. In verse 14, he finds him in the temple and says, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. That's interesting that Jesus says that. It's a grave warning. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Jesus seems to imply that that man's malady was the direct result of some specific sin, even though he doesn't tell us what it was. In other cases, like in John 9, the sickness, in this case uh, blindness, we're told is certainly not the result of some particular sin. Here's a man born blind in John nine, and the disciples asked Jesus, "Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents?" See, this this was the common mindset. People thought somebody in that condition obviously did something to deserve it. Now, this this is the same way uh, Job's quote helpers <laughs> uh, thought his quote friends uh, when when Job was afflicted. His friends came to him and. Uh, you know being good friends comforters they they say look job repent repent you're being punished and job is saying i haven't done anything wrong not not that he was sinless but he but he, he hadn't done anything to bring all that affliction on and which was true the lord testified to that later and that's the case with this man they asked lord who sinned this, so that this man was born blind. Did he sin? Or is this a result of his parents sinning? And Jesus responds in John nine three: Neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Now again, Jesus is not saying that the man or his parents were sinless. He's just saying this particular ailment, his blindness, was not the direct result of sin. Now, regardless of whether it is or it isn't, and in the case in John 5, by the pool of Esada, it, it looks like that man's condition was the result of sin. In John 9, that man's condition was not the direct result of sin. In both cases, Jesus delivered them. That's good news. <laughs> That's good news. Because there are things that happen to us just because we're here. Just because we're in this world, I don't don't presume that 10, 15, 20,000 Japanese people, however many it is, I'm not even sure now, but I don't presume that they were all guilty of some particular thing that brought about that earthquake and tsunami. It's just we're in a broken world. That's where we're at. If a tornado hits your house, and I hope it doesn't, but if it does, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're guilty of some particular sin that brought that on. It just means that that tornado and that tsunami and that earthquake is the result of sin, period. Because there's sin in the world. But again, notice in both cases, John 5 and John 9, Jesus extends mercy. And He heals for the glory of God. Now, that's kind of a long way around to get to the point here, but it it would seem to me that that's implied here, that this may be the result of a particular sin, but regardless whether it is or isn't, Jesus delivers him. But I say that it may be because that's the first place Jesus goes. In other words, the first thing that He does is not to relieve the man's physical condition, but to set his... Anxieties at ease. The first thing he does is, as Jesus always does, is, is shoot for the heart. I mean, when the rich young ruler comes to him and says, "You know, what do I need to be perfect?" Jesus says, "Go sell all that you have, give the proceeds to the poor, come and follow me." Now, why does Jesus tell him that? Is is that how people are saved by selling everything that you have, giving it to the poor? Justification by liquidation? No. We're saved by grace through faith, right. So why does Jesus tell this man to sell everything he has and give it to the poor? Because he knows that man's heart. And he knows the biggest hindrance for that man is his possessions. He always shoots for the heart. John 4, he does the same thing with the lady at Jacob's well. He takes the conversation right to her own problems and makes her face them and deal with them and presents himself as the answer. I think that's what he's doing here. Because what are the first words out of his mouth? They, They bring a man who is... Obviously, he's paralyzed and he's in need of physical healing. Make him able to walk. And what are the first words out of his mouth? "Be, be healed. Get up and walk." No, son. Well, how precious is that? He didn't. Even, he didn't even say, "Man, look, man, you get up." He could have. Son son, sometimes he says to women, daughter, son, be of good cheer, be of good cheer why would why would why would Jesus say that to this man? Well, a little bit of speculation again, because perhaps his condition is the result of some particular sin, and He knows it. Or perhaps it's not, but He thinks it is. Or perhaps He's just in despair, period, because of His condition. Whichever is true, the first thing Jesus does is go for the interior and settle the man's heart. Son be of good cheer. In this condition, based on what your sins are forgiven. Now there's what seems to me to imply that this man is guilty of something and is aware. he's thinking as we all should to some extent again don't misunderstand me i'm not if you get if 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 you get a call tomorrow i'm not saying it's because you know of some particular sin when a person has cancer or aids or whatever it is i'm not suggesting that it's always because of some particular sin but we are sinners though And we do bring problems on ourselves. Perhaps we'll go through this life without ever uh, suffering some kind of physical problem, maybe. But even if that's the case, you're, you're going to encounter trouble. And Job said that too, Job 14. Man's days are few and full of trouble. And a lot of it is self-inflicted because we are sinners. And so I think this word is just as applicable to us. Son, daughter, be of good cheer. Because your sins are forgiven. Now, if if this man is in experiencing inner turmoil, as I suspect, then how comforting is that from the Lord? Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. This is the uniqueness of Jesus. Nobody else can do that. Nobody else has authority to say your sins are forgiven. The only person who can forgive in any offense is who? The person offended. If if you offend me, then I need to forgive you. If I offend you, then you're obligated to offend me. I'm I'm to forgive me, rather. If I offend Sheila, it might be a nice gesture if Leslie forgives me because <laughs> she might be offended that I offended Sheila, you know, but ultimately, well, primarily Sheila needs to forgive me or I need her forgiveness. let me put it that way, so to say, your sins now he's he's wiping wiping them all out here this this man. If we were to just take this situation, the man has just encountered Jesus. He's not done anything to Jesus, right? Well, right and wrong. So he hasn't done anything right at that moment for Jesus to say, oh, you just offended me, but I forgive you. And besides that, he's just wiping them all out. Your sins are forgiven. The only person that can do that is the one who is offended, the one against whom the offense has been made, and that is God. And by the way, that's true ultimately of all sins. So if I offend Sheila, and I hope I don't, but again, just to get back to my illustration, if I offend Sheila, ultimately I have offended God. That's why in Psalm 51, David in his prayer said, against you and you only have I sinned. You read that and you say, wait a minute. Didn't he sin against Bathsheba? Didn't he sin against her husband, Uriah? Certainly he did. But David understood ultimately his sin was, all of his sins were uh, acts of rebellion against God. So Jesus says, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you, demonstrating his authority to forgive sins because he's the one offended. He's God. That's what what is is being brought out here. Jesus can forgive sins because He's divine. Now, verse 3, the scribes were offended. At once, some of the scribes said within themselves, this man blasphemes. You know why? Because they heard Him say, your sins are forgiven. And they know only God can forgive sins. And so they accuse him of blasphemy. He's making himself out to be God. He's claiming divine rights. And they're right. They're only wrong about who he is. And Jesus, verse 4, knowing their thoughts, said, and by the way, more evidence of his deity, okay? He, he knew their thoughts, and He said to them, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? Now think about that question for a moment. In fact, with, with this is an act of mercy. With, with no obligation to do so, Jesus is about to prove, as it were, that he really does have divine authority. So he asks the scribes, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven you or to say rise and walk? Because in spite of all the miracles that he's done, surely what they are thinking is, you know, here here's a paralyzed man, this man's in bad shape. And and he's too bad off for Jesus to fix. And so, Jesus takes the easy route and says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Because after all, can anybody prove that that's true or not true? It's it's easier, this implication here, is that it's easier to say your sins are forgiven. I mean, that's that's a non-tangible. That's something you can't see happen. So, it's easier to say that than it is to say, rise and take up your bed and walk, where the outcome would be obvious one way or the other. It's kind of like if, if I said, uh, if, if, if a, a, a supposed faith healer said to someone, uh, be healed of your headache. Well, as far as the crowd's concerned, who's going to know if that happened or not? Nobody can tell. On the other hand, if like this, somebody that they, the crowd knew and they knew had been crippled was instantaneously made to walk. It's, un, it's undeniable. So the implication is it's easier to say your sins are forgiven you. However, there's another way of looking at this. <laughs> On the other hand, it's easier to say... Rise and walk. That is, the Jews know well, there have been prophets down through the centuries who God had gifted to perform healings. Read the story, Read the scriptures, the stories of Elijah and Elisha, for example, and God just doing miracle after miracle after miracle. The dead were raised. But they couldn't forgive sins. In that sense, it's easier to say, rise and walk. In other words, it takes less authority. They they could, with a delegated authority, say, get up and walk. Or get up and live. But they didn't have the inherent authority to say, your sins are forgiven you. That would put them on a higher plane. It would require a higher status, a divine status. And Jesus says, but that you may know, verse 6, that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, in other words, He he, he says to the scribes and you know the crowd, so that you may know that I have the authority to do this. And again, this is why Matthew is recording it, why he's writing it. So that we may know. That Jesus has this authority. Jesus says to them, So that you may know, then he turns to the paralytic and says, Arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose, verse 7, and departed to his house. Funny how, you know, Matthew just kind of. He just kind of mentions that. Uh, He he got up and went home. (laughs) Because Matthew's main point is to emphasize the authority of Christ. And the fact that the man got up and left um, accomplished Jesus' point and Matthew's point, right? Now, Luke, on the other hand, Gives us a little bit more. And he says, Immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed to his own house, glorifying God. (laughs) He was an excited man. He could walk, and his sins were forgiven. He came in. Troubled, and he left rejoicing. He came in lame, and he left whole and glorifying God in the process. Jesus has the authority to do that, the power. To forgive, power to heal. Really, um, one of the same. One more final point. And we'll close. Matthew always, or, or also rather, gives us a testimony of his own response to the authority of Christ. And again, interesting, he just kind of throws it in here, a brief mention. And this is characteristic of all the, all the New Testament authors, the Gospel authors, if they do mention their self. Like John, the Apostle John, for example, never mentions himself by name. He just calls himself the disciple that Jesus loved. And Matthew here just, just quickly throws in a brief testimony and moves on. Verse 9, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. And there's a summons like we talked about this morning in Sunday school. He said, follow me. And Matthew arose and followed him. Now, why does he throw that in here? Again, his, his emphasis here is on the uniqueness of Christ, the authority of Christ, the deity of Christ. This is the Christ, the Messiah, God in the flesh. And he's giving us demonstration after demonstration in his teaching and in his deeds. And it's all with with, with a, a purpose. Matthew has, has a goal here, and that is... To convince us, all of his readers, to submit to the authority of Jesus. To follow Jesus. And so he gives his own brief testimony. Jesus said to Matthew, follow me. How simple is that? Follow me. And immediately, Matthew submits to his authority. And Luke says it this way, he left All and follow Him. That's the same thing He's requiring of us to follow Him. He's He's the only means of salvation. He's the only salvation. It is Christ and Christ alone. You have trouble. You have affliction. You have sickness. Come to Jesus. You know somebody who needs salvation. Point them to Jesus. There is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. It is through Christ and Christ alone. God in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. Would you stand and we'll pray. This sermon is made available through the ministry of Fillmore Baptist Church in Princeton, Louisiana. Our desire is to faithfully proclaim the message of salvation which God has provided in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. For more resources and information, please visit our website at www.fillmorebaptist.org. You may use the links there to contact us all right is at Fillmore Baptist Church, 6304, Highway 80, Princeton, Louisiana, 71067.